Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. And uh, it's a good night to be in church. Amen. Hear a word of testimony and to meet a new family that we'll get to love on for the next six months. And the thing I miss the most about being on the Foreign Mission Board is meeting the mission families when they would come through. And uh, when we would be interviewing them for appointments and seeing their passion and their desire to get to the field and to be used of God in places where I would never go and I would never be called to serve, but they were. And uh, we are blessed and privileged to have a place not only where missionaries can stay, but where we can love on them. I told somebody, you know, when Terry and I went to Sagamore Hill in Fort Worth uh, in youth ministry, uh, we stayed in the mission home. And quite honestly, it was the kind of home I wouldn't have put a rat inside of. It was terrible. And it was completely furnished with everybody else's stuff that they were either going to throw out in the yard for the garbage truck to pick up or give away. And so when we built that mission house, I was determined that we were going to do it right because I didn't want a missionary to come home from the mission field and stay in a place that none of us would want to stay in. And uh, if you've been over there, you know it's the kind of place you could move into and live. And uh, for the Thames, this is their home uh, for the next six months. And so we're going to pray for them and the medical issues that David is facing and that God's going to give wisdom there and and uh, have an opportunity to love on them tonight at the reception. And I hope you'll get a chance to, to meet them. Romans chapter 5. Several years ago, we did... Uh, uh, an extensive study of Romans 1 through 4, and I want to pick up and for the next few months, and we're going to do what Warren Wiersbe calls a flyover of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Now, believe it or not, and we're going to cover Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 in four sermons. That is an impossibility. This is a true flyover. There will be a time when we'll go back and we'll look at it verse by verse, but I want us to get a picture here because what we're talking about for these next four nights is, is our freedom in Christ, that we've been set free by Christ. And so what does that mean for us positionally as believers? What are our privileges as believers? And the first of those is that we have peace with God. Now, it is phenomenal to even think that mankind can have peace with a holy God when we have been unholy. But we do have peace with God. In fact, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul makes it very clear. We are lost. We are under judgment. We are responsible. All have sinned. Man has chosen to rebel against God. And in all of that, he is painting a picture that says we are justified by faith alone and by grace alone. There is nothing that we add to our salvation. We bring nothing but sin. As I said a few weeks ago in another message, the only thing you contributed to your salvation was your sin that cost God his son. And so when you look at Romans, you see that God took the divine initiative to procure our salvation. We are justified because God took the divine initiative. We are redeemed because God took the divine initiative. We are reconciled 
because God took a divine initiative. And in three times in Romans chapter 5, he uses the word exalt. It's used in the New American Standard in verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 11. The word means to triumph or to glory. Now, when you and I understand where we were and what God has done for us in Christ, it's hard not to get on shouting ground. I'm real excited about my salvation. I tell everybody I meet. I try not to. You know, when you think about where you were, and when you think about what you deserve, and what you have no right to complain about if you went there, because God's just and God's holy. And then that God would say, I am going to provide a way of salvation, and I'm going to get all the credit for it. It's hard not to get on shouting ground. Is that right? When you understand it. When you understand what God has done for us in Christ. And and now look, if you will, in chapter 5, and I want you to, to kind of see how he's exalting, how he's glorying how he's got this spirit of triumph in his life. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we exalt in the hope, in the hope of the glory of God. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. That's the first way that we glory. Secondly, in verses 3 through 10, we exalt in sufferings. We exalt in sufferings. Now, we talked about that a little bit this morning. It's kind of hard to do that, isn't it? You see, I am am always amazed when people don't understand an attitude like Christian Felicia have about what they're going through. You know, there are some Christians, they, they just, you know, they get a hangnail. Why, God? Why? And then there are others that can go through situations that some of us cannot even imagine, and they can see God in the middle of it. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5. We exalt, we glory in the sufferings that we've gone through. Why? Because it's a platform for the gospel. Number three, we exalt in God as our mediator, verses 11 through 21. And each of these represents in some way a stage of Christian maturity and an awareness That wherever we are and whatever we're going through, we have peace with God. Paul says in Philippians, we have the God of peace and the peace of God. You can't get any better than that. Not only do you get what he gives, the peace of God, you get the God of peace, who he is. And so Ray Stedman summarizes it, and he says, The Christian gospel was designed by God to produce a spirit that cannot help but rejoice. Christian joy is not an artificial happiness. It does not mean putting on a plastic smile and pretending everything is wonderful when it's not. Rejoicing, and you need to get this, rejoicing is a deep sense of security in God even when the circumstances of our lives are crumbling. A deep sense of my security in God even when my circumstances are crumbling. 
And so I want us to look at Romans 5. And because Paul is going to trace for us the results of justification, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, in light of everything he said in chapters 1 through 4, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, here's what we're going to deal with. In chapter 5, we're going to talk about our privileges as having peace with God. In chapter 6, we're going to talk about our privilege of being united with God, joined with God. In chapter 7, we're going to talk about our privilege of being freed from the law. And in chapter 8, we're going to talk about our privilege of having life in the Spirit. So, when you read Romans 5, you can divide it into two parts. I'm giving you a lot of teaching outline here, okay? You can divide Romans 5 into two basic parts. Verses 1 through 11 is the fruit of justification. The evidence, the fruit, the manifestation of justification. Verses 1 through 11, he talks about the fruit of justification. In verses 12 through 21, he talks about the mediator of justification, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mediator. He's the go-between in our justification. You don't get justified with God apart from Jesus Christ. He's the mediator of our justification. So everything he has said in the first four chapters leads us to this. So first of all, we're to rejoice in our position in Christ, chapter 5 and verse 1. Having been justified. Now, now that's important because that is an aorist tense, which means it is once for all, not repeatable. Now, why is that important? Having been justified means I don't get justified, I lose my justification, I get justified again, I lose my justification, I get justified again. When you get justified, you get it once and for all. That's what the tense of that verb means. It is an argument for eternal security, if you will. Not eternal security that I walked the aisle and I made a decision, I shook the preacher's hand and I got wet and so I must be saved. No, it is that when I came and found justification and reconciliation with God and got, I was at war with God, I was enduring the wrath of God, but God redeemed me and God saved me and now I have peace with God. Having that having happened in the past, it's a once for all deal. God doesn't give salvation and then take it away. Salvation is a gift of God that is not taken away from us. And so, he says, having done that, it's a done deal. And so, what is, what's happened? Having been justified with, by faith, we have, first of all, peace with God. Now, the example he uses is the example of Abraham. Now, what is it about Abraham? Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him righteousness. Abraham believed God. God said, Abraham, go do this. I'm going to do this. And Abraham believed God. 
The just live by what? Faith. Abraham faithed God. There's not a verb form of faith in the English language. Abraham faithed God. He believed God. And God reckoned it to him righteousness. And so the first example that he uses is Abraham, that when we believe, we are justified by faith. And then we get peace. Now, what does that mean? Peace does not mean a tranquility of our conscience. I mean, that's what the 60s folks did when they smoked a lot of dope. Hey, man, I got peace. That's not what Paul's talking about. It does not mean the absence of problems. We have peace with God, and it means that this is a fruit of the grace of God. Now, let me tell you why that's important. It is important because if peace is an emotion then circumstances rattle my peace. But if peace is a choice, then circumstances don't change my peace. If peace is a gift from God, then nothing rattles God's peace in my life, right? I mean, if God has given us peace with him, then we have been reconciled with him, justified to him, and now we have peace. Why? Because God said we had it. I'm not waiting on somebody to make me feel good about where I am or what I'm doing. I have peace because God said I have peace. And so I choose to act on what God said, not necessarily on how I feel. I am no longer at war with God. Now, here's a problem. There are Christians who act like they're still at war with God. But Paul says, when we're saved, we are no longer at war with God. Now, that can have three meanings. First of all, it can mean I have peace with God. The war has been settled. The price has been paid. The battle's over. I've now been reconciled with God, so there is no longer enmity between God and myself. There is peace between God and myself. Secondly, it can mean I have no fear of death. John chapter 14 and verse 19. If I have peace with God, I have no fear of death. That means that I I may not want to die, but we're all going to die. If Jesus doesn't come back, we all are. I mean, that's, that's just reality. But you see, I don't have to fear it because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Somebody came to Vance Havner one time and said, I'm sorry you lost your wife. He said, I hadn't lost her. You don't lose something when you know where it is. And those that have gone before us are in the presence of the Lord. Guess what? That's peace. You say, how can people have peace facing death? Because they know that death has lost its sting. That death does not get the last word. That death has lost the final verdict. It's been overruled by resurrection. So what once ruled me and caused fear in my life, death, now is overruled because there's resurrection that has overruled everything death ever tried to do. Thirdly, I have been delivered from guilt. I have been delivered from guilt. My sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. And so peace with God is the immediate effect of justification. Now, let's just simplify it as best we can. How many of you have ever heard anybody, especially an adult, who got saved, 
and that you said, man, I'm excited to hear about you say, and they say something like this, I feel like the whole weight of the world just came off my shoulders. What are they saying? I was weighted down with guilt. I was weighted down with shame. I was covered up in sin. But now I have peace with God. So that's the immediate effect of the justification. We were enemies, verse, five, verse 10 of chapter 5, but now we were at peace. Look at verse 2. This grace in which we stand, that's the continual effect of justification. The peace is the immediate effect. By grace in which we stand is a continual effect, which means simply this, folks, and do not miss this. You are saved by grace and you live by grace. You don't get saved by grace and then work to please God. You work out of your love for God and your worship for God, but you don't do it to keep saved. And some people say, I'm going to get busy in church, and if I do enough good works, then my salvation is secure. Your works have nothing to do with salvation. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. You cannot do enough good works to please God. You cannot balance the scales out. And so the continuing effect of the justification is the grace in which we stand. Let me ask you, does anybody in this room want what they deserve? I don't. I'm standing in grace because if God gave me what I deserved, he'd strike me down right now. But I'm standing in a grace that I didn't deserve, I didn't merit, I didn't earn, and I can't buy it. It's freely given. So I stood in it to be saved. I stand in it to stay saved. And to stay in a right relation, it's a continuing effect. And there's a constant supply of it. In fact, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, we won't look at it. It tells us when we enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, we draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Then he says, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. That's the ultimate effect of justification. You have the immediate effect, the continuing effect, and the ultimate effect. He says, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. This is a word of certainty. In fact, J.B. Phillips paraphrases this, happy certainty. Now, let me just ask you to write down the letters, numbers one, two, and three, and let me give you three things here real quick. Number one, I have peace with God. That means I can look back and my past is covered by the blood of Jesus. Having peace with God means I can look back and my past is covered by the blood of Jesus. I have the grace of God. I can look up and be thankful that God gives me grace. So I can look back and know that my sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus. I can look up and thank God for his grace and good, God for his goodness. And then I have glory. I can look forward to seeing the Lord face to face. Now, it just doesn't get much better than that. I don't know anybody in Albany, Georgia that's excited about the Super Bowl. I mean, that just doesn't... Is anybody just panning, anxiously waiting to see the Patriots? Well, I know Jim is, but besides Jim, he doesn't count. He hit his head a lot when he was wrestling. The Patriots and the Eagles. Whoopee! By the way, you'll see more beer commercials than you'll see the Patriots and the Eagles. But I can get excited about peace and grace and glory because that's going to last. 
By the way, the Super Bowl is so significant. Tell me the winner of the, of the third, the eighth, and the twelfth Super Bowl. You don't know it. That's how important it is. But what is important is that you have peace with God, you have the grace of God, and you look forward to the glory of God. That is important. And so God has given us that. Secondly, we have a comforter in times of trouble. Verse 3, we also exult in tribulation. Now, the prosperity gospel joy boys won't tell you that. You're not supposed to have any tribulation. Uh, It's supposed to be all sunshine and no rain, all honey and no bees, all roses and no thorns. The only problem is nobody has that life. And if they do, they're lying to you. Because there is exalting in tribulation. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Now, I don't know how some people can preach a gospel that says, you're not going to have something that Jesus said you're going to have. Because what that says to me is they're calling Jesus a liar. Jesus said, you're going to have tribulations. You're going to have troubles. You're going to have trials in all kinds of ways. Because of your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not going to be easy. Christians are going to be persecuted. Christians are going to be martyred. There are going to be pressures on the job if you stand by your faith. He didn't say you might have, 4% of you will have, according to the latest Gallup poll, 8% will have this next year. He said you will, blanket statement, have tribulation. Now that just about kills about 90% of television preachers. Because if you just give them a seed gift one time, they'll promise you you're not going to have any. The problem is everybody giving them a seed gift is still having tribulations. They're not tribulating. They're flying around all over the world. (laughs) They're letting you tribulate. I've chased that rabbit too far. Let's go on. (laughs) Chapter 8 says, If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified with him. You and I are in a battle. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. James says, count it all joy when you endure trials of various kinds, multicolored kinds, all kinds of various trials. You say, well, I haven't gone through what so-and-so. No, but you've gone through something else. And God's entrusted you with a trial, and you're to exalt in it because God trusted you enough to give it to you. You say, well, I don't know if I can handle that. And God knows what you can handle. God knows what you can endure. And so he specifies for each of us what molds us and makes us more and more into his image. In fact, uh, Peter says we shouldn't be surprised by trials and suffering, but we are to rejoice, and this is what he says, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We are not to grin and bear it. We're not to be stoic. We're not to be masochistic. We are to embrace what God is giving us because in doing so, we say, God, simply whatever I'm going through, I want you to get glory out of it. Whatever setbacks, I want to be stepping stones to me being more like Jesus. And so he talks about in verses 3 through 5. Now, I don't think Paul is saying here we are to rejoice in suffering. Let's just, Lord, I just want to suffer so I can rejoice. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he says we're to rejoice because of what the suffering produces in us. 
Remember what Ron Dunn said? Anything that makes you pray is a blessing. And the truth of the matter is, folks, let's just get God honest here. The truth of the matter is, most of us, our prayer life is really bad until we get in trouble. And then it steps up a notch. And we never ask anybody to pray for us unless we're in trouble. When's the last time you said, would you please pray for me? My life's going so good, something must be wrong. You don't do that. You ask people to pray when something's not going right, right? Why? Because you know that in prayer, you find out what God's trying to do in your life. And God reveals. So look at what he says. Tribulation produces perseverance. Let me just give you a little statement here. The very endurance I need in times of suffering is produced by suffering. The very endurance I need in times of suffering is produced by suffering. The word perseverance means to abide under. And here's what it suggests. It suggests an intimacy that is deepened when everything around us implies we should fall apart. You remember Job? All his friends and his wife curse God and die. Job said, I'm not going to do that. What happened? Job developed an intimacy that was deepened. And when you come to the end of the book of Job, he says, I have heard of you with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes. Something happened in Job spiritually through all that suffering and all that disaster and all those setbacks where he got an image of God and a relationship with God that was beyond anything he'd ever had before. Again, I just would quote Ron Dunn. Ron Dunn said one time, everybody wanted Manly Beasley's faith, but nobody wanted to go through what Manly went through to get it. Oh, I want to have faith like that. I want to be able to believe God. Yeah, but you don't want to go through what he went through to get it. We'd like God just give us a pill to take so we could have that kind of faith. But tribulation produces perseverance. A Korean Christian was asked how they handled uh, the persecution from the communists, and this is what he said, we are like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper you drive us. That's good. The harder the devil hits you, the harder life hits you, the deeper it takes you with God. So tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces proven character. You've passed the test. You've been purified. You've been sifted. You've been refined. And then proven character produces hope. In verse 5, and hope does not disappoint. (laughs) Hope doesn't disappoint. Church may disappoint you. People may disappoint you. But because you've been justified by God, because you have peace with God, because you've been reconciled to God, the hope that God gives you will never disappoint. You'll never be disappointed in what God says. You may be disappointed in what somebody else says to you, but you'll never be disappointed in what God says to you. And so I want you to look at something here, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of, just a slight little bit of Greek right here, okay? The Holy Spirit was given to us. That's an aorist tense. That's past tense given once and for all and not to be repeated act at salvation and then God's love has been poured out within our hearts that is perfect tense now the difference between aorist tense and perfect tense is perfect tense is a past event with abiding results 
So the Holy Spirit has been given to you. That means the day you got saved, you got the Holy Spirit. He was given to you. But the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. That means that what God started, he continues with present tense results. He's continuing. He just says, okay, here's the love of God. Boop, that's it. He says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. There are abiding results of that love being poured out in our hearts. We see more and more of the love of God poured out in our hearts as we anticipate and express the love of God that's been poured out in our hearts. You see the difference? One is in the past, not to be repeated. The other is in the past with a continual effect in our lives, an abiding result in our lives. So, when God justified me in the past, made a judicial decision at a moment in time, a righteous God made me right with him, it leads to a permanent relationship that shows up in words like love and joy and hope and peace and glory. Why? Because God didn't just save you and drop you off on the corner and leave you there. He keeps working in your life and in your heart. Number two, we are to rejoice in reconciliation, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what's the difference between somebody that grows through a time of suffering and somebody that falls apart in a time of suffering? It all is keyed here, and it ties back to verse 5. You see, if I see what I'm going through through the eyes of the love of God, I will grow. But if I get angry at God about what I'm going through, I'll just get bitter, and I'll fall apart, and I'll become resentful. That's why two people can go through the same circumstances. One will come out praising God, and the other will come out blaming God. It's because they don't see themselves in a reconciled position with God and that God has not abandoned him. He's drawing them closer to himself. The key is letting the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do in you when you're going through it. Verses 1 through 5. Paul links peace and hope and justification and glory to suffering. But now I want you to look at verses 6 through 11. He links all of that to suffering, but he, now he makes Christ suffering the link. See, God's not just saying, well, you suffered. Now he's saying in verses 6 through 11, Christ's suffering is your link. And so look at the words he uses. He uses four key terms. Helpless. Verse 6, that means without strength, you are unable to save yourself, unable to change your situation. Ungodly, verse 6, we had no power to live the life that God had for us to live. Sinners, verse 8, we had missed the mark of righteousness. And enemies, in verse 10, we were hostile to God. You see, one thing that you have to understand to be saved is that before you were saved, you were hostile to God. You aren't indifferent. In God's eyes, you were hostile because if you're not for him, you're against him. Right? Some of you are not sure about that. And you say, well, there's a lot of good people. No. 
Man is in hostility against God. He's been in rebellion against God since the fall. He is totally depraved and left to himself with no moral laws and no consequences for his acts. Man will do anything and everything. Hostile to God. Christ died for absolutely worthless people like me. Now, folks, listen. You weren't worth dying for. And you weren't worth dying for. And you weren't worth dying for. And you weren't worth dying for. God could have let you go to hell and been justified in doing it, and you'd have no complaint. But in your worthless, helpless, hostile condition, God said, I'm going to set my love on them. And I'm going to do something for you that you don't deserve and something that you're not worth doing it for. God could have written us all off, and none of us could say it's not fair. But he set his heart on us. There was nothing good in Michael Catt worth dying for. God didn't look at me and say, he's a nice boy. I'll die for him. I was in a lost condition. God reconciled me. I have peace with God. And it was through the suffering of Christ that that peace came. It did not come through my good works. It did not come from joining a church. It didn't come from baptism. It didn't come by being good or being moral or being ethical. Paul said, and he'll tell us later, you know, I kept all the law until I got down to coveting. And then that one got me. See, some of us in this room think we're okay because we've not, we've not murdered and we've not had adultery or anything else. But I want to tell you, everybody in this room is guilty of coveting. All of us. We are guilty of coveting because in our lives, at one point, somewhere, when you were five years old, you said, he's got a tricycle, he's got a bicycle, and I want it. That's coveting. He's got a toy that I want. That's coveting. It is an inward thing that sometimes doesn't even express itself. And Paul said, I kept all the outward appearances of the law, but God got me on coveting. And all of us are guilty. And God could have said, I'm going to leave you there. But he didn't. Much more than, verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from his wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. Now look, there's twice, much more in verse 9, much more in verse 10. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In verse 9, we were saved from condemnation. In verse 10, we've been saved by his life, and we were enemies, but now we've been reconciled. And the reconciliation is not only his death on the cross, it is his living, resurrected life in us. Verse 11, and not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We are no longer enemies but friends. And Paul saves the best for last. And you see, we can get happy and we can jump up and down. We can raise our hands and praise the Lord and just say, Lord, I just thank you for the peace that you've given me. I thank you for the grace that you've given me. I thank you for the glory that's yet to come. Soon and very soon we're going to see the King. 
Oh, Lord, it's so good to have peace with you. It's so good to live in grace. It's so good to be set free from the bondage of sin. But Paul saves the best for last. He says, we don't exult just in those things. We exult in God. Not what he does for us, but in who he is. And by the way, who he is is worth worshiping regardless of what he does. He is worthy to be praised. The angels have never been saved from sin. They don't even understand salvation. It's beyond their ability to understand it. But they worship God. We who have been saved can rejoice in our salvation. We can rejoice in the peace. But I want to tell you something, folks. The thing most worthy of worship is rejoicing in Him. Not in what His hand has done for us but in who he is, highly exalted and worthy of praise. John Stott says in verses 1 and 2, we've been justified by faith and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And in verses 9 and 10, being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. So both parts argue from our present salvation to our future salvation, from our justification to our glorification. Chapter 8 and verse 30 says, Whom he justified, then he also glorified. There's an old song. I think Dottie Rambo wrote this song. That's old. Because she's old. Is she still alive? She don't look like it. (laughs) But she wrote a great song. I will glory in the cross. Folks, listen. Our exulting is in God. And I want to tell you, I I go back in this passage and I remember watching the movie The Passion and, and knowing that it was my sin that did that to Jesus. Not yours. Mine. My sin. My anger. My prejudice. My envy, my coveting, my sin, put him on that cross. Say, well, he died for the whole world. Yeah, okay. But he died because of you too. Let's not just get blanket statement with this. Let's remember, he died because of you and because of me. And so if I don't have any reason to get motivated I've got one Christ died the just for the unjust the godly for the ungodly I told the staff two weeks ago I said you know I just I don't I don't understand people I just don't I mean when I watch college football games I hear these announcers say you know it's just hard to get a football team up 11 weeks in a row they you know they just it's hard to get them up 11 weeks in a row I'm going, you know, what kind of dummy? I mean, if I had been a 19-year-old kid with an opportunity to play football on television in front of 50,000 people, you ain't got, I don't need a coach to jack me up. Just give me a helmet and some pads and let me go put a whooping on somebody. I don't need anybody to jack me. I don't need a halftime talk. 
You're giving me the right and the privilege to play something that I love. And you tell me, well, you know, 19-year-old kid, it's hard for them to get up. Well, I know it's hard for them to get up. <laughs> Lord knows I know that. But you're telling me that you can't get motivated one day a week to go out and do your best? Now, let's apply that to the church. People walk into church on Sunday mornings. I can just about tell how people's weeks are by how they walk in the hall. Some people come in like this. Like Eeyore, thanks for noticing me. (laughs) How you doing? Okay, under the circumstances. Well, what are you doing under there? (laughs) Folks, listen. I don't need Mark Willard and the choir and the praise team and the band to get me excited about worship. I don't need, I don't have to have an upbeat song and say, now, if you don't get me in the first three minutes, pal, I'm checking out on you for the rest of the service. Because I came in here and you got to rock my socks or, or else it's over. You know, I'm through. I don't need that. Why? Because I don't come for him to help me worship. I bring worship I've already had this week with me, and it just pours out. I don't need anybody to put an electric shock under my seat to make me get excited. I don't need to jump a pew to be excited. I can worship because I exult in who God is. And it doesn't matter whether it's been a good week or a bad week. When I come, I am to come with my game face on. Because the world is watching us when we gather corporately to see if this is the real deal or just a fake show. And if we're going to show the world that it's a real deal, we ought to exult in God. How's your week been? It's been terrible, but God has been good. How's your week been? I don't know, man. I just, nothing went right this week. But I am so glad to be in the house of God with God's people. I can't wait to sing. I can't wait to get in my Sunday school class. I, and not to go, I didn't want to tell y'all everything's wrong with me today. Just for a few minutes, if I just have a hundred minutes now, I'd take the whole time and tell you that, you know, I got an ingrown toenail and, and my aunt's sister, Bertha Susan, on her, on her mother, brother, sister side, third cousin removed, uh, she had a wart removed from her hand today. And, and that's why I came to church. You know, most of our prayer time sounds like an organ recital. We pray for livers and noses. and it. But you know what, folks? You get perspective when you realize God is the one that created all those things that are hurting. And he can change it just like that. Or change the way you look at it. But as long as the focus is on me, then I'm exalting in my problems not exalting in God. And so when I look at the cross and I see what God has done for me, that he has poured his love out, I say, wow. So let's finish up. We're to rejoice in our mediator, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into all the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, 
And by the way, I want you to just kind of walk through this with me and kind of look at the times where he talks about death reigning and sin reigning, and then where he talks about grace and the gifts of God coming into play. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. On the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, there you go with that much more again, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that in transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more." So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I've got four things, and I'm going to summarize this. You're going to study it for yourself. Number one, sin entered the world through Adam, the first man. That's verses 12 through 14. Sin entered the world through Adam, the first man. Death entered because of sin, and death is the penalty of sin. We die because we're sinners. And that came through Adam. Number two, the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus, is found in verses 15 through 17. Now, let me, let me just ask you to make a, just a little parallel column. Just put Adam and Jesus, and let me give you two or three things here, okay? Just put Adam in one column and Jesus in another, and let me just give you two or three things out of verses 15 through 17. Adam sinned through self-assertion. Adam asserted himself. It's what I want, what I think. Adam sent through self-assertion. Jesus saved us through self-sacrifice. Adam's choice brought death. The choice of Jesus brought life. Adam brought condemnation. Jesus brings justification. So you've got, in Adam's column, you've got self-assertion, you've got death and condemnation. In the column with Jesus, you've got self-sacrifice, life, and justification. Number three, the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Jesus is contrasted here in verses 18 and 19. And you can kind of keep your list. Adam failed to keep the law. Although it was not written, he still failed. Jesus fulfilled the law. By the sin of Adam, all of us 
are dead in trespasses and sin. By the obedience of Jesus, many will be made righteous. Now, if you don't think God doesn't plan and orchestrate things, all of this is determined by two gardens. In the Garden of Eden, you lost everything. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you got everything. Two decisions in two gardens affected every person that's ever been born. In one garden, God said, don't do that. And they did it anyway. In the Garden of Eden, we lost our inheritance. We lost the ability to walk around unashamed in fellowship with God. And we've been paying the price ever since. You just look at Genesis and see what happened because Adam and Eve sinned. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knelt down and he said, Not my will, but yours be done. Everything changed because of two gardens. Now, which garden are you living in? The garden of sin and death or the garden of God's will? Submitting to him, honoring him, loving him. And then finally, there's the law versus grace. I'm going to ask our praise team and our band to come up during this time. Verses 20 and 21, all men are in Adam by birth and all believers are in Christ by faith. Now go back to verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope. Now I want us to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to exult in God. We're going to take a few minutes and we're going to exult in God. And here's what I want to ask you to do. If you need to come down and you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, our staff's going to